This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Welcome to Health and Living with me, T. Shao Ik. Today, we are discussing dyslexia and whether it is actually being identified among, um, for the purpose of today's discussion, primarily Chinese-speaking children. So we typically think of dyslexia, or at least I always have, in relation to alphabetic languages like English and uh, uh, to a larger extent as well, Bahasa Melayu in our country. But uh, dyslexia also exists among speakers of um, what I'll call symbol-based languages like Chinese. Um, there's a lot of research being done among the Japanese as well. But the learning difficulties faced by children learning these languages may be less well understood. So joining me for her monthly show, consultant developmental pediatrician, Dr. Rajini Saranandan, as well as clinical psychologist Simpson Koo to discuss what dyslexia looks like among Chinese language learners and why the problem may remain invisible in Malaysia's Chinese vernacular schools. And just as a disclaimer, um, our discussion today will focus uh, among Chinese language learners and uh, not among uh, Tamil language, uh, which is the other uh, you know, vernacular language in our country. But uh, for the purpose of today's discussion, we'll focus on Chinese language first. Dr. Rajini and Simpson, thank you so much for joining me today. How are the both of you? Good, thanks. Thanks, Sharik. Hi, pleasure to be here. Um, perhaps I'll start with you, Dr. Rajini, uh, to help us understand uh, the basic concept of how we read and understand language and leading on from there to understand then how dyslexia develops and how that actually presents difficulties. Yeah, so I think most of us think of dyslexia as just a reading disorder. Yeah, I mean, the term dys, uh, a difficulty, um, and lex, lexia, is, is reading, if you if you translate it directly. But I think we have to understand it that that it's not just reading. And and the basis for dyslexia, as we know, is is it's a language-based learning difficulty to some extent. Um, but beyond the reading difficulties, there are other aspects of um, uh, learning or even just day-to-day functioning that people with dyslexia have difficulty with. You often find that if you talk about children with dyslexia, they they also have difficulties sort of finding the words sometimes to express themselves, um, being able to retrieve information from their memory bank, um, something we call a working memory. Um, you know, both long-term and short-term memory, they have difficulties with um even knowing where their body is in space and time. So commonly we look at that as, um, you know, they have difficulty uh, differentiating right and left or retrieving things sequentially. So if you, if you look at a school-going child, they may know Monday to Friday because they go to school, they write Monday and the date every day. But come a school holiday, you suddenly realise your child doesn't know what day it is. Um, and... Many children with dyslexia also have some form of um, writing or drawing difficulties and may even have some motor coordination difficulties that uh, can also affect them uh, uh, in their day-to-day living. So not just in learning and writing, but other aspects of learning. For example, during PE and uh, you know just being able to run around with their friends. 
Um, if we want to look at a uh, what dyslexia actually looks like in a child who's struggling with it, Simpson, how does it present difficulties uh, when somebody has dyslexia in terms of that whole language reading right there? Like, like um, how do they process or struggle to process? Okay. So, first of all, from the observations by the teachers or the parents, we could see some of the symptoms like, number one, they may write um, uh, the characters or the, uh, the alphabets in the reverse, um, the mirror side, we call it, the left and the right, they're confused with left and right. Number two, um, the space in between characters or words, uh, it may be distant or it may, uh, at sometimes it may be very close. It's not consistent throughout. That's the second. The third thing would be that um, they may miss some of the important, like example, in English, you'll be spelling, like they will miss like one or two of the letters in the word. But in Chinese, perhaps they will be missing like one or two of the strokes or the very important uh, radical. They only remember one part of it, but not the other side of it. And other than that, when they read, they may actually miss um, some of the lines uh, or when they're copying, you can see that they are quite struggling uh, with um, copying from the board. Like the, you, if you compare and observe like how they copy from the board to their uh, book uh, as compared to their peers, they may actually need to refer back to the board um, at a higher frequency and their speed of writing is much, much uh, slower as compared to their peers. So these are some of the symptoms uh, that we could pick up uh, when we observe um, children with dyslexia. Mm. Does non-English dyslexia, like for, ex- for instance, in the Chinese language, mm. is there a difference uh, in the way the brain has to process uh, what they're reading and writing? Definitely. Because um, in English, we talk about phonological awareness that um, from the words, a few letters come together, it may make certain sounds and then it forms the words. But then in Mandarin, it's a little bit different because in Mandarin, we have these um, radicals that one of it is a semantic radical, the other one is a sounding um, radicals. So when these words come together, then only it make a, a, a meaning. And sometimes example like semantic radical, let's say uh, I have one word, um, it's called like uh, pow, running. But then the, the semantic radical is on the right, but then the, uh, sorry, the sounding radical is on the right, but the uh, meaning radical is on the left. But if the pow, you change the uh, uh, semantic radical to another word, it becomes pow, means like you are full, right? So this kind of thing is very complex. It makes it even harder and you have no way to trace or understand, like you can try to guess any meaning of it. It's much harder as compared to um, the, the English phonological awareness um, training that we could provide to the children to pick up or improve from there. Mm. Yeah. Just one more point on how the Chinese language is different. Mm. How, uh, because we know that in the Chinese language, you have the four tones for every... Exactly, the tone um, variation. Yes. Does that also... Yes. Yeah. yeah, in fact, it's not only tone variation. Um, yeah, so first of all, the tone variation itself, because it sounds so familiar, so, sounds so familiar, right? It's only like yin, yang, shang, qi, it's only four tones, but it sounds so familiar, so the kids will get confused. The other thing that makes it more complex is, um, in Mandarin, we have this one word, they may have different s- sound, and they sound it totally differently to mean different things. And we have one sound that, you know, just even one sound itself, it can have many, many words. That An example? Y- uh, using the same sound. So example, let's say just to use back the same word that just just sound like, it's like chang. Chang is like, uh, it's long, uh, but totally another word 
the way of writing totally different means um, human intestine, the chang in your tooth, like, you know, the, the intestine in your stomach totally looks different, but the word exactly sound the same. Yeah. So it's like, um, you mean, that is making... So you can say, neither chang and chang. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, your intestine is very long, but then you have two chang inside and it makes it sound so complicated. And, and at the same time, we have like one word that have different uh, meaning and it sounds totally different as well. So this just make the whole, um, the, the, for, for our children with dyslexia uh, in the Mandarin learning, it just makes it more complex yeah, in such situation. Let's pick this up after a quick break. I'm speaking to Dr. Rajini Savarnandan, consultant developmental pediatrician for her monthly show and clinical psychologist Simpson Koo, who's in the studio with me and we are talking about dyslexia among Chinese language learners today. Stay tuned to Health and Living, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living. I'm T. Shaoik, and today I'm speaking to consultant developmental pediatrician Dr. Rajini Sarvanandan and clinical psychologist Simpson Koo. In the first part, we've been discussing what dyslexia looks like among children who learn reading and writing in Chinese uh, and how the Chinese language is so different from an alphabetic language as um, it's a symbol-based language that's largely tonal in nature and uh, utilizes different radicals in different positions to convey different meanings uh, and words. So um, how the brain has to develop uh, largely different skills as well to learn the Chinese language. Um, now, Dr. Rajini, I'd like to ask you, um, how much of these struggles are being picked up among children who learn Chinese? I mean, I want to get your observations in terms of who you see in your clinic when it comes to children who already speak um, Chinese as a mother tongue at home, but also those who don't speak Chinese at home, but learn it when they uh, attend kindergarten or school. What do you observe? Um, for a lot of the kids that I see, um, they present to me uh, very early on with language difficulties. So I, these are kids that I'm following up. So they may have presented with speech and language. And that's the bulk of the kids that I see, if I'm very honest. Um, and as we're you know, going through the, the developmental milestones and we work on their language skills, etc. When it comes to learning, especially around six, yeah, um, the year before they go to school, um, for a lot of the children who are going into uh, Mandarin, uh, well, Chinese schools, um, sometimes actually teachers don't pick up their difficulties at that stage, because a lot of it is rote learning, um, shall we? And, and similarly with some of the kids with dyslexia as, as well. And, <clears throat> you know, unlike um, English, where the dyslexia testing is available more freely, um, testing for dyslexia in Mandarin, it's a different ballgame. And uh, I'm not so sure that many people do it well anyway. But we can already pick up that some of these kids are going to struggle based on other, other things. For example, when telling a story, they can't sequence their story properly. They get their timelines muddled or the sequence of their story muddled. Or when they're making even a sentence, the order of the words sometimes, um, especially when they have to write it down, uh, becomes a problem. Then you have the kids who really struggle because... You know, we talk about memory issues, right? Can you imagine if those going to Chinese school, you have to know English, you have to know Bahasa, you have to know uh, Mandarin. Um, gosh, that poor brain, you know, having to to cope with all three. What do you put in that 
little CPU um, before it crashes. Yeah. Um, so, and with some of the other kids that who present a bit later, and quite often they come to me not not because they are presenting learning problems, but they present with behavioral problems. And quite often they get referred because, oh, does this child have ADHD? Okay. Um, and they're acting out in the classroom, etc. And then we go back and we see, okay, these behavioral problems actually are not pervasive. They're not in all settings. They're only in school or they're only in the tuition center in the afternoon uh, to a lesser degree. Because actually what they're struggling with is the learning aspect. And this is where dyslexia presents differently, um, either directly because of the symptoms of learning or indirectly through behavior, through other reasons, you know, anxiety, etc. Simpson, is there anything you want to add to that in terms of how dyslexia is misunderstood and misread for other issues? Um, being a Chinese school kids before and I uh, went through the canning process when I was younger. No. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think as what uh, uh, um, Doctor mentioned just now, number one is actually like, you know, they may acting out, you know, in terms of their behaviour, thinking that they are not paying attention or they are just troublemakers in the class. Um, a lot of time they purposely do not, um, you know, turn in their homework. Um, so these are some of the, it's actually a coping mechanism for them that they want to escape uh, and they want to run away from uh uh, no, doing their homework because it's just too tough for them. And I do believe that with all my heart that all children, yeah, every single child, they are, they're meant to be kind, they're meant to be cooperative. It's just that the environment is not supportive enough and therefore when they are not sure how to cope or how to respond to the environment, they tend to react um, or, you know, by running away or just um, become a troublemaker or what. But then at the same time, on the other hand is that because of... Um, the workload in the Mandarin in the Chinese primary school is just it's just tremendous, right? Three yes. languages you need to learn, so you can see that. Uh, I hope it doesn't happen now. I just okay during my time, my time, okay, is that uh, I tend to miss like a few of the radicals, and you know, like in Mandarin, like um, you're missing just one dot. Or the, or the dot is being placed at different place. It meant, oh, it faces the wrong way. Uh, yeah, it means totally different thing. Example, like a, a word big, right? Ta. Then you add one dot uh, at the bottom, it means um, Thai. Uh, put it on the top right, it becomes Chuan. You know, even now as I'm talking to you, I get the position left, right, <laughs> center. Yeah, not that accurate. So, yeah, so that is one of the way that they are being misunderstood as like lazy, not paying attention, not cooperative, uh, being very slow. Or being callous. Being callous. Mm. And in times, uh, we actually, uh, I received a few of the referrals, uh, you know, that um, the the school teacher taught that um, maybe the child may have um, some cognitive functioning um, challenges as well. So, but but when we go through the um this um you know clinical observations and the discussion with the children, then we realize that hey, hang on, beyond academic, putting academic aside, these children actually can talk very well with you and they have certain interests and, and all that. So from there we could pick it up, you know, that actually as what Doctor mentioned just now, the issues actually only um you know uh, appear within the context of learning. Uh, but it's beyond that, actually they are very fine. However, in the long run, if we do not manage it, eventually it will become the next issue, which is their emotional issue, their behavior issue, and they could get into depression, anxiety, and so on. Mm. Dr. Rajini, um, you did already mention that there is a lack of standardized assessments for the Mandarin or Chinese language dyslexia, right? Um, I think there are. Simpson may be able to tell us more, but maybe not 
Um, uh, I mean, a lot of tests are not normed for our country. When I say normed, they've, they've not been standardized for our population. Um, I know there are uh, standardized tests um, that are used, for example, in Singapore, in Hong Kong, and even mainline China. Um, but I'm not sure if many of our um, clinical and educational psychologists practice it, but Simpson, you may be able to. Yeah, um, yeah, ex exactly what, was what Dr. mentioned just now. Um, we do not have a standardized tool right now in Malaysia that we is uh, adapted to our norm. Uh, even though I think uh, the latest one that nearest to us is actually Singapore. They actually have the standardized tool published in the year 2019 or 2018. So, uh, and because of the lexicons, uh, and it has to match back with our syllabus as yeah. well. So we do have tools um, from um, Taiwan and uh, Hong Kong uh, and also um, in the mainland China as well. Just that we need to tweak. And the other thing would be the statistical significance and relevance because somehow, uh, like it or not, we still need to run uh, quite a massive research in Malaysia to create the norm for Malaysia, right, doctor? So therefore, yes. I think this is a challenge we have not only for the um, Mandarin, uh, Chinese dyslexia, but also some of the other tools we have as well. Like example, for our Malay uh, community, our, our Malay-speaking kids, we don't have a very, uh, a re uh, how do you say, a very stringent or well established Establish uh, norms yet, even for our bahasa. Oh, you see, yeah. despite that bahasa is actually one of the major. Yes, I. Oh. Yeah, it's exactly. Yeah. We don't have that. Yeah. yeah, and and you know, I think that boils down to it takes a lot of money, time, personnel to standardize these things. Yeah. So what we have is um, screenings, even for bahasa, we have screenings that have been sort of um, designed by MOE that mm. teachers are meant to uh, implement. Yeah. yeah. So, schools. yeah, I still remember, like, you know, uh, if the schools have time to administer. So back then, a few years back, when we have a Linux uh, yeah. policy that stopped right now, there was a time yes. that actually the school picked up quite uh, a number of uh, students with they may have uh, suspicious of maybe uh, they may have learning difficulties or, or other learning disorders and all that. Then that, yeah. that's where the referral started. Because in Malaysia, we don't have a very um, thorough um, screening uh, at different age of their, uh, their, their lifespan. So therefore, that would serve as a very good um, policy back then as a gatekeeper to start filter the kids and able to start to refer. But at the same time, uh, some of the parents feel very stressed, you know, that uh, what was wrong with my kids right all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. and, but it was a good pickup because uh, from that itself, a few kids being referred and uh, through that program to me, and then I, and and, and in the, initially they thought it could be a cognitive issue, or it could be an emotional issue because the child looks extremely quiet at school. Uh, maybe is that a social anxiety, or maybe is that a maybe there was one case even being referred and suspected to be selective mutism because the kids totally go mute and silent in school, but. Later on, we found, no, it's just merely a learning uh, disorder, specific learning disorder, we want to call it SLD, particularly in mathematics and also in reading. Yeah, mm. so we were glad that we were able to help the child. Yeah. Do either of you know why this policy was stopped? Um, I think it came in when we uh, had the zero tolerance policy. One, one of the issues were children in some schools. There was one time where we had uh, high-performing schools, um, cluster schools, etc. Um, and I think that was creating some segregation. And um, in some uh, aspects, when they were screening kids and if kids were not doing well in some of these schools, they were sort of recommended to go to special education. And, uh, you know, children learn, we have to understand, children learn at different rates. And it doesn't mean if they 
fail the screening or they can't read very well at standard one, it's the end of the world. So I think it was a good program because what happened is many schools were then able to put in um, uh, or were at least expected to put in some remedial classes in school, which helps a lot of families who cannot afford to access services outside school. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, So it's how we use it, really. So uh, with the lack of a standardised tool for Malaysia, with the lack of at least a sort of baseline screening process now, uh, what can parents and teachers do? Uh, I haven't even gone into interventions yet, but, you know, we're still just talking about detecting. But what can parents and children do sort of just to be a bit more aware? Yeah, I, I think it's what we mentioned just now. I think parents in general, they, they got to, um, you know, pick up and observe some of the simple uh, signs and symptoms that the child may have. And do take note that when your child struggle with academic, just academic alone, but not the other um, other aspect of their life, like, you know, like their play with their friends, their social life, uh, maybe in their daily living, they are not clumsy, they, they are motor developments and their development milestones are all fine. So that's where actually the parents need to pick it up and and start the referral process. Yeah, just get to the um, pediatricians to go through some thorough physical checking to ensure that everything is fine. And then the next thing is refer to a psychologist um, to to proceed with the further investigations. On the other hand, we also hope that you know um, I started done some uh, teacher training for some of the government schools. Just that um, I think the awareness and also sometimes the the, t- the schools are just too busy. We know that one teacher handling like fifty kids or forty kids in a in our Chinese primary school, yeah. it, it's just it's just very demanding. <laughs> and then one teacher not only teach one subject, right? They teach multiple subjects. And most of the time, the Mandarin teacher are actually also their form teacher mm-hmm. or their classroom teacher. So therefore, it's going to be very tough for the teachers. But I just hope that sometimes um, the referrer is not easy. I just spoke to some of the teachers. They told me that, you know, when we want to refer the kids, um, we wrote a letter, but uh, the parents is the one that decide whether they want to proceed. Uh, further or not so the teachers do not have the preview whereas in UK it's different like the the, the referral system is kind of like um, inter- interconnected so where um, you know, even the parents decided not to but if the school really thinks so um, the psychologists were around in the school um, to pick up the cases and we can work with the social welfare to to, to, to bring on the case further um, with the kids and the parents um, through the social welfare perspective so that's something that we, we don't have um, beyond the education system that the support system are not well established yet at this juncture Mm. Dr. Rajini, uh, what would reassure parents in terms of helping them understand what outcomes their children could have if the dyslexia is, uh, you know, if there's intervention and the children are supported? I think as with any other child who has different learning needs, um, parental acceptance is one, but also parents getting involved in supporting their children. So you asked that question earlier, shall we, you know, like, what about children who don't speak the language and they go to, to Chinese school? Um, I think it's very hard uh, if the parent is not able to help their child. On top of that, the child has a learning disability. Um, it's going to be even harder. So, But, you know, it, it has been done. I know of a parent who made the effort to learn um, while her child was attending the vernacular school. Um, and and in a way, you know, that helps support her own child. Um, and this this is a Chinese family, but they are what we call bananas who, you know, don't speak Mandarin, don't read Mandarin, um, only English educated. 
But I think Simpson touched on a very important point. If what's more important is actually supporting the the social emotional aspect of uh, what your child is going through, because you can put in all the intervention, um, but if you are not there to support your child, then learning, you know, the progress is not going to be uh, fantastic. We know happy children, motivated children learn better, regardless of ability. Yeah. And and those two things are very important to look at. And I think that's the biggest part that parents play. We, we often see that, you know, when, and when a child has a learning disability, what do parents do? Okay, after school, I must send him to this particular center um, where they do intensive reading one-on-one for two hours. Then after that, he needs to go for his Kumon or whatever. Tuition. Uh, enrichment class, tuition for maths. And then they come back, they have dinner. And then they have to cope with tuition, uh, homework from school and homework from the tuition. intervention center mm-hmm. or tuition. So where is the playtime? Where is that time to de-stress and... You know, these poor children are are basically like us working for most of our awake days, right? So this is where parents play an important role, that making sure that, yes, your child needs intervention, but your child also needs that time to sort of regroup, uh, re, uh, recharge that battery so that they are happy to move on and to learn. Yeah, yeah I think uh, from my end here, I, I actually have one point. Uh, because I myself went through the system and I struggled at the early years of my primary school life, um, just putting myself back into the into the streets. Okay, a lot of memory flashback and yeah. all that. I just wonder, like, you know, if, if the child really struggle, you know, uh, in Mandarin, it's very obvious and you don't have the support system. For example, like the parents are not um, you know, Mandarin educated, so they, they, they don't understand Mandarin and all that. I, I just wonder, like, you know, uh, must we learn all three languages at the same time? Yeah, <laughs> very. I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah. And that's often the biggest challenge: telling parents why not just focus on one or maybe two, and the other becomes a fun language that you learn for communication. Or- exactly, because you look at you know, like um, at the earlier at the earlier on, we, we discussed you know that um, usually um, dyslexia doesn't come alone as like a single uh, conditions that the child may have. Often than not, they would have probably have some moral um, developments or coordinations left, right. And I know a friend uh, who is a university lecturer until today, uh, so he's dyslexic. So until today, he, he, he may tend to um, go into a car accident easily just simply due to the left and right. Oh. And then uh, he cannot listen to the navigations and then just follow instruction. He will just confuse with the left right. and right. So this is a lifelong, uh, you know, some of them would continue to have this lifelong struggle to cert- in certain parts of their life. Right. So I just thought that coming from a person that working very closely with the children, I, I just felt um, the empathy that maybe we sh- can we consider not to have three languages learning at one go? And uh, yeah, just look at the priority because language is just a tool for communications and language is just a tool for you to acquire other other knowledge as well, you know, like in maths and science and so on. So there's so much thing you need to learn. And at the same time, uh, whether um, you, 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 you want to survive or not uh, with this, because you look at, you know, a lot of uh, people coming from the Western countries, they could just spend one year in China and they can master the language so well and they can speak just like a native speaker, like maybe spend one or two years in China. So I was just thinking that, um, you know, not, not to say that I'm not like supporting Mandarin education or like just that I feel that maybe 
maybe uh, could there be a lesser pressure uh, at this juncture so that we could sustain? Is a is to be sustainable in the mm. lifelong learning rather than I could have a child that is because of academic and then emotionally uh, being, you know, uh, traumatized or being affected. That is the last thing I want to see. Yeah, Dr. Rajini, your thoughts? Yeah, you said it. I mean, you know, um, uh, it's funny because my daughter learned Mandarin and um, it was during the pandemic and she was doing it for an exam. And her teacher said, the only thing that she needs is um, someone to help her talk. Because um, if she were in school, there would be more opportunities after school, etc. But because it was during the pandemic, it was harder. And, you know, language is something that you learn, like uh, Simpson said, you Immersive. know, you learn it. Yes, you learn it when you're in it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You can't. It's harder. And can you imagine learning to write a language that you don't speak or, you know, that you don't hear around you all the time. It's it's even more challenging. It's possible. And some people say you actually only need to learn a language up to the, you know, equivalent to the age of a nine-year-old learning a language to be able to function in day-to-day living. So if you have a reading ability up to standard three um, or, a, you know, a conversational level up to standard three, you can somehow get by with that language Mm-hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong, Simpson. Uh, that was actually- yeah, actually, I just want to, to, to put the situations on myself. I can't speak English until I was 15 years old. So it was from 15 years old onwards that I got a very good classroom teacher, uh, English classroom teacher that really, really grew, uh, you know, guided and journeyed with us and forced all of these Chinese school, Chinese speaking boys to start to learn English. And we start from a very basic Peter and Jane, the hundred, like the important words and all that. Mm-hmm. And 15 and then by 17 years old, all of us actually could speak very well. And most of us score A in our SPM English and all that. And today I'm sitting here talking to you in English. Yeah. So that just shows <laughs> that I started only learn to pick up English when I was 15 years old. Yeah. So it can yeah. be done, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We'll go for another quick break and come back to discuss what kind of interventions are needed to help children with Chinese language dyslexia. Joining me today on the show are consultant developmental pediatrician Dr. Rajini Sarvanandan and clinical psychologist Simpson Koo. We'll be right back on Health and Living BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Xiao Ik. Today, I'm speaking to Dr. Rajini Sarvanandan, consultant developmental pediatrician, and Simpson Koo, a clinical psychologist. We're discussing the challenges faced by children with dyslexia when they learn the Chinese language, and especially the challenges that they face when they have to learn multiple languages um, for different subjects uh, in Chinese vernacular schools in our education system. And... Um, at the risk of bringing it back to how interventions would be the magic bullet, and I know we're not saying that today, but still, you know, when you provide support for children with dyslexia, Simpson, what kind of interventions are important? Uh, and of course, recognizing the importance of emotional support, let's assume that should be a given. Um, also addressing what misconceptions there may be when it comes to teaching children with dyslexia because it's not just about 
you know, making that copy more words, right? It's not. Yeah. I think first of all, will be multi-sensory. I think um, a lot of time our learning um, right now um, in Asia, a lot of time we don't use all our senses. So when you write, to begin with, some of the kids, maybe they are more sensitive in their hands and touch and all that. So it'd be good. Like, let's say you you, you do, you have a sand tray and then, or yeah, or beans, and then you use that for them to trace through the words. That's number one, using multi-sensory approach in, in doing that. Number two is that um, it has to be sequential. It means that the kids need to learn how to write the radical in the right way. Because we are, even when I observe, like, you know, um, in the clinic, when I ask the kids to write, uh, even the alpha, alphabetical orders and all that, and then when I start realize that their strokes is different and they are not consistent with their, the way they write, so it gives them more confusion and more challenges. So if, the, if we could practice the radical slowly, and then it would be helpful. Third one would be chunking. In regardless of which language you're learning, if you can chunk the similarities together or distinctive different uh, words, but they have a very uh, close meaning, or not like uh, we call it word family, that kind of stuff. So it will very help. Uh, it will be very helpful for the kids. Um, the fourth thing, the Mandarin has an advantage because some of the Mandarin words come from a very visual symbolic um, transformation. Xiang Xingzi in Mandarin we call that. So it looks like example like a moon. You know, a moon looks like that. So therefore, you could draw a moon first and then only you have the words inside. I do believe that some of the children with dyslexia, they are actually uh, a very good uh, visual learner and um, some of them have a very good imagination as well. By using the story and that symbolic um, graphic, it could help them uh, in, uh, in picking up the words um, easier. Um, the fifth thing is that we have to explain to the kids the structure of a Chinese character. Because a lot of time, I think uh, only later part of, of our study, then only we learned that when we were young, we would go straight like just a remote training. You must remember, you must remember, yeah. you must remember. No, it's not. Because Chinese, I mentioned earlier, like it, that is a, um, there are two parts to it, you know, mm-hmm. left and right. One part will contribute to the sound, uh, you know, the sound. The other part will represent the semantic radical. So you need to aware of this. An example like... Uh, Pao, you know, ran, the pao, and a pao, the pao that you're eating, the bun, right? So all these are very similar words, but by changing one of the semantic radical, the pushou, then it changed the whole meaning. So with that kind of storytelling, it should help the kids yeah. to pick up the words and they're more conscious about what are they writing. Yeah. Um, Dr. Rajini, you know, apart from uh, what Simpson has mentioned, maybe specific to learning the Chinese language, what are some other misconceptions that you like to address when it comes to helping children with dyslexia in terms of uh, the way they are taught and uh, what would you like to correct there? I think, you know, back to what Simpson said, learning, understanding the basis of that language is very important. Yeah, so if we look at, uh, if I refer it back to, say, Bahasa or even English, um, the basics of reading is um, a phonological basis. And, and alphabetical in nature because you need to know the alphabets, you need to know the sound the alphabet makes, you need to understand that, you know, combining two alphabets makes this sound and when you combine those syllables together, it makes another sound. But remember, there's also the other aspects of dyslexia that we, we mustn't forget. So just going to a tutor to work on that may not help that child entirely. So this is back to where we talk about multisensory learning. And multisensory learning, I mean, um, Simpson touched on the fact that, you know, you can draw through rice and all that. And, you know, interesting, one of the things that 
we as Hindus and um, you know Tamils believe is that before your child goes to school, you go and do a special ceremony in the temple. You take a tray tray of rice, and when they're doing the blessing, somebody's holding that child's hand and writing through rice. And that's how traditionally in India, children used to learn to write in rice, in mud, in in sand, etc. And incorporating that into learning is important. And then remembering the other things that you know. If a child can't even grip pencil correctly, um, so you know this is when we—it's difficult on a radio show, right? I'm trying to show how a child may hold a pencil. You know, he may um, invert his wrist, and then writing—you can imagine just writing is going to be difficult, especially if you have subtleties in the direction of the stroke, uh, etc. And that child's going to struggle. If you don't correct that. That child's going to tire when he writes. So even though he picks up on the reading aspect when it comes to writing, it may you know it may be a double struggle in the sense that it's not just recalling how to write the character, but it's effortful. It's almost like you know somebody else is walking, but you're running a marathon. So then that child tires easily, loses focus, etc. So it's important to look at that holistically yeah definitely yeah, I think pen gripping is so important as what doctor just mentioned just now and then one of the way the parents can observe there are two things so on top of pen gripping you know like pencil gripping that you can see the the, um, the 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 positionings of the way they hold the pencils at the same time actually the parents can look at you know when we go through the buku latihan the, after they write how many pages that is they can imprint, that, imprint. <laughs> yeah correct so yeah. Or, or, or sometimes the kids just write too light because they don't have the strength just too light okay some of them write just too hard because they, 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 they do not know how to control the strength. So therefore, handwriting becomes the next issue that always come together with children with dyslexia, that, uh, the pencil gripping and also the strength that they use, right? So it's the two extreme, too light or the imprint like too many pages. So therefore, it's very painful, um, very tiring and therefore they can't do much and wasn't thing, you know, with the Chinese learning, you need to write multiple times, one word, like 100 times or whatever. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> 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 is a nightmare of anyone who's gone through the Chinese school system. On that note, are there certain innovative ways to help kids at least do the learning without that effort uh, that they perhaps need to, they need time to overcome? I don't know, like learning to write on, uh, uh, using whiteboard and a marker perhaps with less effort or or touch screens. Uh, What do you think about that, Dr. Rajini? Yeah, I mean, I think now multisensory learning incorporates, um, you know, the digital world, isn't it? Um, and some kids will find it easier to write, say, um, on a tablet, uh, on a, um, a whiteboard, because, you know, there's less friction, there's less uh, force needed, etc. And, and that's what we need to think about. Like when we're teaching these kids, um if we want to get rid of one aspect of, of that learning that's uh, hindering them, yeah. we need to think about incorporating that. And, you know, I, I think a lot of listeners probably wanted Simpson to sort of say, yeah, use this app, use this website, you know, and your child will learn to read, right? It's not that. And I think what we're trying to get across is that, um, like, for example, if your child has a problem with memory um, and recalling information, then we got to work on that aspect. And how do we work on that aspect? We can do day-to-day stuff, you know. At the weekends, you do your marketing or your grocery shopping. 
get your child along with you, get them to remember, you know, five things that they eat and they like you to cook. And you can go to the shop, what were those five things mm-hmm. that I need to buy? And then it, it expands from that. Um, or, you know, can you go pass this message to your father? Um, you know, incorporating that into your day-to-day life is important. Sports, being able to play badminton, things like that. You know, all this is part of intervention. And that we, that parents, actually I say we because I'm a parent. Um, as parents, we can do these little things that will then we see the improvements that come with the intervention that's mm-hmm. happening, say with a tutor or with school, etc. Because when we, when they, I think when we incorporate that into our family life and routines, mm-hmm. we see where the kids are struggling then. And there's a lot more yeah. empathy there, right? Instead of yeah. expecting an external party to fix it, yeah. quote unquote. Yeah. Simpson, no, no magic apps, is it? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I think there are some apps out there. It's just that uh, I'm not going to say it's like this app is better than the other apps because um, yeah. different apps have different um, uh, functions and there's no one app that can fulfill all the needs. Yeah. Okay, let's be honest on that. Just that I think the way and also we also don't want to make um, the app become like from uh, become the magic bullet, like you know, from a, a tutor sending a child to a tutor and then now relying on the app become the next magic bullet. It's not going to be that way. I think uh, multi prong approach, uh, multi-sensory approach uh, and, and using the creative way you definitely help um, ultimately it's actually instilling the joy of learning If psychologically I'm so afraid of this language or I hate this language very very much from the bottom of my heart, This nothing will work yeah? you get the best tutor in the world so it's not going to help the child uh, yeah? and one thing uh, that I, I thought of is about um, maybe the working memory part, I think Dr. Ranjini mentioned very very uh, on, on, the, on the right spot is that because learning Mandarin or maybe school kata and all that, it's really building blocks yeah? you see, okay, for example for Bahasa it's two letters combined become one sound Correct. and then another two letters combined become one sound and these two sounds have to combine to become a word example like buku bu buku ku then you combine then buku so all these are working memory and how can I remember this in the long term and retrieve back to my short term memory and then working memory and start working on so all this actually is part of the memory training which I think that is also important to nurture the environment and nurture the child to have a good memory uh in order to them, uh, in order for them to facilitate um, the the learning, uh, mm. I think that is the one part memory. The other part is the joy of learning, and um, actually, then the parents say, "Okay, wow, well, in the long term, what will happen to my child if my child go to university? Don't worry, parents, because around we have this speech to text technology, <laughs> <laughs> and even when you write email now, they would they will have this predictive um, uh, uh, AI functions that can come up with some of the words and all that, and they are spelling checker for you yeah. in word and all that, right?" So actually, these are some of the assistive technology that is already available and is now day-to-day life already. So I think when they, the moment they pass all these exams that they had to face without any technology support, later on, when they're in uni and all that, writing assignments and all that, that will be fine for, for, for our kids. Don't worry about that. So I think it's more like, uh, you know, pacing through, you know, uh, uh, this primary stage, the secondary stage, I think that would be the one. Uh, however, for any children that who have an official diagnosis, example, for dyslexia and all that, uh, for um, our Lemurka Paparexaan, for SPM, as well as you are doing sitting for IG, IGCSE, um, you know, the UK syllabus and all that, there is actually an exam board that you can go to with your official diagnosis um, mm-hmm. from a qualified professional. You could get certain uh, help, we call it um, extra allowances in an exam. So, example, 
example, like they could give you a word processor rather than you write on your own um, through handwriting, you could type it out. And uh, if they know that you are coming from a, a, a dyslexia background or that, um, you will not be penalized for um, your spelling um, errors. Marks will not be deducted. This one already happened like back then, like, 10 years plus ago when I was in UK, usually implemented this. And I'm glad that Malaysia, we have, we have picked it up, I think, a few years back already. The Mago Paprixaan do have a board to review um, your extra allowances that can be given to you, uh, bigger print and etc. Mm. So parents don't have to worry, okay? Yeah, these are all the support sets available during the important exam. All right. Um, I would like to wrap it up with uh, just a final takeaway. Um, I know, Simpson, you've kind of um, already... Um, mentioned a few sort of key things to think about. Mm. Dr. Rajini, a, a takeaway from you? Um, I think for parents, don't look at your child having a disability, but think of your child more holistically and, you know, work on that confidence. Every child is good at something, so we've got to make sure they, are, they know that. Mm. Any final, final thoughts? <laughs> Yeah, I think it's not the end of the world if someone can read because now we have speech-to-text technology. <laughs> yeah, it's more like whether the person can use the language uh, effectively in their daily communication. I think that's what we want. And uh, having a happy child, I think is more important than uh, a child that can master three languages. Thank you. <laughs> The radical idea for today <laughs> presented by Simpson. Thank you so much. I, I think it's a lot of food for thought. Um, whether we can change the education system is probably a big conversation. But what parents expect from their children and from teachers is uh, it was a point where everyone can start. Thank you so much for speaking to me today, Dr. Rajini Savanandan, consultant, developmental pediatrician, and Simpson Koo, clinical psychologist on health and living, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.